Hi, everybody. I'm Dawn Mitchell, and welcome to Dawn of Sports. Jim Suhan and I are so excited about this show. We talked to a man who not only had a huge impact on my life and career personally, he's a Twins great and a Hall of Famer. So we're so happy to have Jim Cott here for an awesome conversation. So, of course, we're talking Twins. Plus, Jim and I help you move on from that hot mess of a football weekend here in Minnesota and lots of other fun. So let's jump on into this week's Dawn of Sports. Welcome to the second episode of the Dawn of Sports starring Dawn Mitchell, Fox 9 sports anchor. Uh, and, well, you know her. She's, she's the most prominent woman in local sports. Uh, we're very lucky to have her here at TalkNorth.com. Thanks to our uh, sponsors who have already joined the show, Rudy Luther Toyota and All Energy Solar, AllEnergySolar.com. Uh, we're going to go through a lot of our favorite topics. We will talk about women in sports. Today's guest will be Jim Cott the famous twin, the famous broadcaster, now in the Hall of Fame. Uh, He's always been one of my favorites, and uh, he has a great and long-lasting relationship with Don that Don's going to tell us about later on. Don, how are you? You know, Jim, I'm doing great. How are you doing? I loved our first podcast, and I I got a lot of great feedback. So uh, this is going to be fun. I really appreciate it. It's going to be a lot of fun. And Mark Rosen was our guest in week one. He was fantastic. Uh, Not surprising, but he it was really an interesting conversation. It went different directions than I thought it would. We all talked about Viking figures in the past that kind of made an impact on us one way or another. We ended up talking a lot about Bud Grant, Randy Moss, Chris Carter. Great conversation. Of course, it'll be it's always a great conversation with Jim Cott. So let's let's start today's show. We're going to start with our uh, segment called Take It From Us. And we're going to tell you what we think about in kind of the, the most prominent stories in Minnesota sports right now. Don, let's start with Vikings issues. What's bugging the, you the most about this 0-3 start? You know, this is the obvious, but hold on to the football. <laughs> you know, it's almost at the point where in the middle of the game, they're driving down the field, first drive, and then when they fumble that, it's uh, you just throw your pen down. Like, you know, you can't say this really on TV because then someone will send you an email saying that you believe in voodoo. But I was like, it's like a voodoo doll. Like, all of a sudden, things are going great. They're like, you know, or maybe let's go puppeteer. Pull the string. Whoop. And I'm like, I just threw my pen down. Like, are you kidding me? Like, and I just, I think I texted, like, I'm not even going to say it. Because everyone at home was thinking, like, you know, the old cliches, did they butter the ball? What's going on? And the players do not want to fumble it. I'm not saying that they're, it's just, it's just kind of crazy at this point. Don't you think, Jim? It is because, listen, this team does have flaws. They've also put themselves, in, they've also really talented. And the passing offense has been ridiculously good. I know. And they've put themselves in position to win all three games and it really has been, and, and I think it's a good news, bad news thing. Uh, the good news is fumbling and dropping simple passes the way they have at this rate for players of this caliber should not continue. And right. if it continues at the running back position, now you have two other options, Ty Chandler or Cam Akers to take over. Uh, TJ Hawkinson, you know, he probably cost them the game on Sunday. Uh, the fumble in the first quarter probably cost them at least three, maybe seven points. And then the ball going off of his hands, then up in the air, and being intercepted ended their chances. I, and Hawkinson's really good. So the bad news is their hands have been terrible through three games. It's cost them three games. The good news is I don't know that I see that as anything more than kind of flukish. I don't think that's going to continue. 
No, I absolutely agree, right? But you just have to, like, not again, three games in a row. And when you see from a guy like TJ, what what people don't see behind the scenes is in the locker room, um, he did not get out of his uniform. Like, he looks stunned. You remember that, Jim. And then he even came and talked to us, still in uniform. And then he went and sat back. I think the locker room cleared out when he was still sitting in his uniform, looking up at the ceiling, like, what just happened? First of all, he, he was just beaten up in that game too, right? It's not for a lack of trying, but also that last play, he says he wants to be that guy. Um, you know, he was he's just thinking about that, and I hope he's moved on from it. But you have to feel for a guy like that, you know? Like, the, as we've said before, some of the fans get really mad and this and that. They're not trying to do this. <laughs> but when you just see a guy was trying so much, and sometimes when you try so hard, that's when the mistakes happen too. Um, but I, I did. I felt for him. Um, but you're right. These are – they're almost like flukish. Like, are, are you kidding me? That's just to the point that we're at. So the good thing is clean that up. It goes away. But Kevin O'Connell did say this yesterday. He's like, we're taking this seriously. And if it's not cleaned up, we're going to put other personnel in that will clean up. So yeah. ball security is a premium. Uh, no doubt. And I did like that O'Connell previous week was saying, yeah, we've ordered everything we can find off the internet to help us stop fumbling. And I'm just imagining all these Amazon trucks pulling up, uh, you know, with, with devices, uh, kitchen devices, just to see if you can poke the ball out. Uh, sometimes fumbling and driving passes is because you're trying too hard. Sometimes because you're thinking about it too much. At some point, they have to be professional enough to get past it. TJ Hawkinson is getting paid a lot of money because of his hands. He needs to do that job in that way. So but let's move on. If, I just want to tag with this. If you look yeah. at the replay of the first one, three guys were punching the ball. Now, yep. if a guy was shorter, he would have hit the ground first, right? Like he was trying to get down. He's just so tall. So he also kind of had that going against him. But, you know, it's still no excuse, but it's got to change. Yeah. And it also becomes a feeding for us. If, then, if defenders think they can get the ball out from oh, you, they're right. going to try even harder. And, exactly. and it was obvious that the, the Chargers were like, oh, this team fumbles. We're going to make it happen. And they did. Uh, another yeah. part of the game, I don't think this was the most important thing that happened in the game, but it was the probably the most embarrassing was that they let so much time run off the clock uh, without spiking the ball, without running a play with, you know, a cousin standing there holding his hands over his ears, trying to get the headsets to work. Um, I, again, I don't think that was the most important thing that happened, but it's a bad look when you pride yourself on coaching offense and having a veteran quarterback and you can't get a play run. Right. And, you know, I think the the most confusing thing for me was at the end of the game, right? You're like, does Kirk have that latitude to make that call? And if he does, you know, like do quarterbacks like in the past, like a Brett Favre or something, do do they just kind of do it? You know, like, hey, I'm not hearing anything. This is what I got to do. Like this Kirk, why did he hesitate? And then when Kevin O'Connell said, you know, I should have clocked the ball. So he wasn't even thinking of clocking the ball. He was thinking about being aggressive and getting that one more in there. So the fact that that wasn't the first decision for me was like kind of like the head tilt. Like, oh, Mm -hmm. like why put that anxiety on a team that is already having enough anxiety the first two games leading up to this um, on your team? But I know it's that aggressive nature and they want to be aggressive. But, you know, clock it, spike the ball, give yourself more time to, you know, be on the doorstep for a couple more tries. I don't right. know. Yeah. Whew. And I, I, and I, I agree with O'Connell philosophically, the new idea in moments like that is why line up 
spike the ball, waste it down. If you can be efficient enough and call plays ahead of time so that you know what your next play is and you don't, instead of lining up and clocking it and letting the defense reset, you take advantage of the defense's chaos. You call, you run the play that you're ready to run and you have the, you feel like you have the advantage. That's fine. That's a great philosophy. It's a, it's the right way to do it when you can. As soon as the clock starts, stops, starts getting away from you. That's right. when you're 30, that's, you know, we're, we're going to talk about this in a later segment too, but as soon as the clock starts running, you got to throw away the plan and just stop the clock. Oh my gosh. It was like 23 seconds. And Jim, you and I know this and all the fans listening too. you put that in an NBA game, a playoff game, <laughs> you yeah. know, like 23 seconds, that's eternity. And it was in that specific time too. That's why a lot of us were like, what are they doing? So yeah. And, that, and it, that it, was looked, it looked horrible, and it was horrible. It looked horrible. Mm-hmm. It was horrible. Of course, if TJ catches the pass in the end zone on the next play, we're not talking Everyone, about it so right. much. But when you lose, <laughs> that looks really bad. Uh, exactly. By the way, I want to let you know that uh, this, is your, this is TalkNorth.com you're listening to. We've got great people all over the, the podcast network. John Krasinski, Michael Russo, Jeff Diamond, Roy Smalley, Lavelle Neal, uh, John Millay, Mike Grimm on Gophers, Dave Lee. Dawn is added to that list of stars. We're very grateful to have her. Also, we are... Uh, Lucky to have Brandon Morton, our longtime producer. He's been with us forever. If you like the show, tell people about it. And if you like the show, subscribe to it. It's the best way to listen. It's free. It's easy. And you can always go to talkworth.com, find our archives, other shows you like. And if you subscribe to those as well, it's just going to be the easiest way to listen. And again, it's free. All right, let's get to NFL craziness. The Dolphins score 70 points. I I love this offense. I love Mike McDaniels. I did not see 70 points on the horizon. Oh, who did? And first of all, what are the Dolphins eating? And can we feed that to the Vikings? That Pierre Nugent in our sports department, he is a beleaguered uh, Dolphins fan. And like even coming into the show, he's like, it's the Dolphins. I'm not really expecting much. And now, I mean, he's coming in walking on air. It's like 70 points back east. I know it's nicer here in the Midwest. They call it the mercy rule. But that's when you wish we call it the slaughter rule when we're growing up back east. You wish at that point, like, who's going to call it? That's just bad. But it was so good for Dolphins fans who've just been waiting for a team to be better. And for Tua, so, you know, look good for them. For, uh, <laughs> what, and what's interesting is when you see the young, modern offensive coach get his system really rolling, what it can do. Like, Sean McVay did it and almost won one Super Bowl, then won another. Uh, you know, we've seen Shanahan be on the doorstep. And now you're seeing Mike McDaniels. This offense looks more efficient than even the other great offenses in the league. Uh, the, the, the ball comes out so fast. There are so many people open. Uh, they can, they, and he's got, he basically runs the 49ers running game where there, there's wide lanes open and he back can run through them. Uh, they look real. Uh, this is, doesn't look flukish to me that they, they look very dangerous. Yeah. Uh, oh, they're definitely a talented team, but the 70 points, like that was just kind of crazy. It's something like just kind of running it and running it up and running up the score, running up the score. What I love just personally, just kind of even away from the game is I hope this makes Mike even more of a guy that you want to listen to after the games because yep. he's already right up there. My number one to like, what is he going to say now? You know, what is he going to say after the game? What's he going to say if he's mic'd up during the game? He, this guy is just so, so much fun that uh, it's fun to see kind of his personality personified kind of on the field and also performing well. No doubt. I, I'm, I, he's probably my favorite coach in the NFL right now. Uh, and on the other side, uh, the Bears are <laughs> horrific. They are hopeless. You know, not only is the play bad, but they're a mess off the field too. Yeah. And, 
you know, and we, we can see one side feeding into the other. So I'm just like, what is going to go on? So people are already calling for a fire sale. This is the truth. Our photographer, Aaron Goodyear, was in for the Gophers game. Um, and he saw at there's a, some store across the way from Ryan Field. And all of the Bears merchandise, 50% off. Fifty yeah, percent off, and, and the problem is <laughs> they tried to re- before the game Sunday. I know they <laughs> tried to build around a talented young quarterback, but we may never know. Not we may never know whether Justin Fields was good enough because he's not be give, being given a chance. It isn't. Let me tell you, Chicagoans they do not have the patience for that either. Yeah. They're they. Yeah. You know, they are not going to be long suffering. They're going to be loud about it. I mean, they're going to put their money elsewhere, obviously, at the 50% off. But, you know, I just feel for Kevin Warren. So, does Kevin have to go in there, fire sale, kind of clean house? People are already calling for Brian Pulse, like head. And, like, you know, do, do you do that? I think you still give him a little bit more of a shot in terms of being the GM. And he and Kevin kind of might have to clear house. I don't know. Do you get rid of, head coach at some point you got to shake something up, right? You can't fire the players. You're going to have to do something. Yeah. I think it takes a general manager a while to really make an impact. So I'd be in favor of firing the coach first and then yep. giving the general manager another draft to try to fix things. But it's, they might be years away, even if they do all the right things at this point. Um, let's go to Gopher football. Uh, oh, was, come on. We're just going right down the tubes, Jim. Well, it's uh, <laughs> it's been a rough week for Minnesota sports, and I I was I didn't watch it Saturday night because I was busy, so I watched it Saturday morning, mm. and I was like, kind of get I got to early fourth quarter. And I was like, oh, it looks like they're going to win this by forty eight points. Why do I even need? Uh, I'll just check the score, and make sure I didn't miss anything. And I looked at the score and said they lost this game. How could that possibly happen? That. Is an, that's an embarrassing loss. Uh, it's Northwestern, an embarrassing loss. Northwestern had no business being in that game, much less winning it. And you know what we always talk about in football? It's turnovers. It's, you know, that, that really turnovers and special teams plays usually lead, are the things that lead to upsets. Yep. The Gophers had a 50-yard field goal. They had zero turnovers. They ran the ball for 250 yards, and their quarterback didn't throw an interception. I, can't, I watched them lose it, and I still don't know how they lost it. Wow. Um, what well, I'm getting, uh, this just in, I'm getting a text from Jim Cott. Stand by. Ooh. Oh, I know. Um, I don't, you know, I saw how they were losing it. They were losing it little bit by little bit. Okay. And that, it's kind of like that slow drip that gets away from you, you know, when you're like, okay, well, well, that was a big chunk yard. What, what happened on that play? Like uh, I was checking to see, did someone go out injured? Like, how did they just connect on that play? And then they went down scoring like, Ooh, it's 24-10. I don't know. This doesn't feel good. And then we're in the sports office and like one of our photographers said, hey, I'm going to tell you this right now. They're going to they're going to lose this. Northwest is going to come back. I didn't believe it. And if they didn't push it to overtime, but it was that, Jim, it was kind of like you, you, they just kind of I don't know if they they didn't give up, obviously, but. I don't know what changed after that. And they just kind of let Northwest and then they, they kind of felt like they were digging in quicksand and and then the field goal instead of the touchdown, I, I was just putting my hands up in the air. Like, I don't believe, I don't believe what I just saw. Cause I went down to do my sports cast and I came back up and I'm like, they did indeed lose this thing. Um, PJ Fleck, it's the worst loss, uh, in terms of score differential in his, um, 
you know, for letting an opponent come back 21 yep. points in his entire era at the U. And a lot of people are saying, well, is this his coaching style? I, I don't know if you can automatically just say, that's it. He's done. Coaching style is not working. I don't believe that. But what happened to his team that allowed them to crumble? That's the question. Right. I, I know. I don't think it's a fireable offense. I, I think we get way ahead of ourselves. I think you need a lot of evidence built up to start talking about somebody being fired. Uh, PJ's overall, he's done a good job with the Gophers. Right. He's very cautious. Uh, his cautiousness allowed Northwestern to get back in the game. And then what, and you gave a bad team some at playing at home, some hope. And all of a sudden they played over their heads because you let them, uh, you know, it, they're not throwing the ball. Well, they're not throwing the ball often. And they're kind of, honestly, they kind of remind me of Glenn Mason's teams. If they can beat you up by just running over you, then they will beat you. But if you are competent enough to hang with them, they will not make plays in the fourth quarter. Yeah. And you know, that's, you're dealing with these young kids, right? Um, some of up a, a great question, like how do you get maybe these kids that are 19 years old, 18 years old to kind of get over something like that and get over it quickly. And PJ said, listen, this is a grieving process. This is like a death. Like that's how he equates a loss. He said, you have to grieve it and then you have to move through it. Uh, I don't know if that process is heady enough or, um, or too heady, I should say, for these kids, but they can't let that affect the rest of the season. So this, this will be a turning point, I think, Jim, whether they'll learn from it and, and boom, or if this affects the rest of the season, or maybe they were just exposed. I, I'm not quite sure. I'm, I'm hoping I, I just, they'll learn from it. I just think they're not that good, and they're playing a very difficult schedule, and they needed to win games like this because the tough part of the schedule is coming, and I'm just not sure they're good enough to survive it. Hmm. Yeah, I don't. I'm just. Let me tell you, back to back Saturday and Sunday. It was. It was quite a weekend. People texting me like, I can't do it anymore. I can't watch football in Minnesota this season. Yep. I'm like, no, no, don't give up yet. Don't give up yet. So they'll be back. They're always. They always come back. They will always. You know, you just come back for more. It's like the the Gore Pilgrims, right? You know, you just you have to see what that car accident is all about. But hopefully it will be better. Uh, Let's hope. Yes. Just for entertainment purposes. All right. We're going to do our quick hit segment called Agree to Disagree. Sometimes we're going to agree. Sometimes we're not. We will not uh, make up any opinions just to be contrary. We're going to tell you what we really think. So let's get to it. Uh, To clock the ball or not, whose fault? Was it Kirk Cousins or Coach O'Connell's that they did not clock the ball when they needed to in the fourth quarter? First of all, I won't say it's on the coach. Second of all, though, you're a veteran quarterback. You do it. You should know, but so I'm going to, I'm going to go coach. I'm going to go cousins. Uh, as soon as you realize there's some trouble with the headset, say, hey, I'm a 35 year old, 10 year starter in the NFL. I'm a franchise quarterback. I'm just going to go up, clock the ball. Then we'll reset. And, and then we'll still have three shots into the end zone. Uh, again, it's not the reason they lost, but it, it looked bad. I think Kirk should have just, as soon as you realize things are going South, just, just clock the dang ball. You know, some of the greatest, like we said earlier, quarterbacks, they, they call audibles, they do whatever, they clock the ball. I mean, when almost everyone in the building is thinking, you know, just put the ball down, clock the ball, spike it, do whatever you need to. Everyone in the building is kind of saying that and it's not happening. Ugh. Ugh. Yeah. Throw yes. the pen. All right. Uh, let's move on to my favorite team in town right now, which is the Twins. question is, will the Twins finally break their 18-game playoff losing streak? I'm saying yes. 
and they're doing it at home and they're going to do it fast. I think they will win game one. I think they will win the series. Uh, and listen, I know it's Minnesota sports, it's the twins, it's baseball, which is random and they have people hurt. I am told that Royce Lewis is trending to at least being a DH in the series. I'm told that, uh, tre- that, that Correa, his foot feels really good. So I actually think they're going to have a pretty good team on the field playing at home with, and I just think I wrote about it a couple of weeks ago. They just haven't had two outstanding starters starting off playoff series in a long time. Lopez and Sonny Gray give them a chance to sweep. And you know what? It's not the Yankees. That's but. nice, but they also <laughs> lost to they also lost to, to a, what I didn't think was a very good Astros team in 2020. So it's yeah. it, it's the Yankees. Yeah, the Yankees intimidate people. But they've also lost to the A's and the Astros, you know, and there's no excuse for those losses. You know, I'm just putting all in the rearview mirror. I kind of, I have a good feeling about this team. I think they're on the upswing. Do I think they're going to go deep into the fall? Do I think? No, I don't. But are they going to snap this 18-game losing streak? Yes. That's what I got. All right. This one, this one will be a little different. Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift. Do we care? I don't care. I don't care. And let me tell you, I'm not a hater. I don't want any Swifties calling me, saying anything, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, I, it seems staged to me. I don't care. But it's actually fun on the other side. But, all right, let it go. I don't want every single Chiefs game to be seeing a cutaway of her chest bumping a buddy and sitting with his mom. I don't know. Maybe I'm, I, I don't know. Am I bitter? I don't know. I don't care because I don't care about celebrity. But I will say I find it fascinating just because it reminds us that those of us in sports who think these athletes are, you know, the ultimate celebrities, Travis Kelsey, his jersey sales went up 400% when Swifties found out that he was dating Taylor Swift. Okay. His, <laughs> his, uh, everything about Travis Kelsey became bigger and more famous. He could win five Super Bowls and cure cancer and he would not get the boost he's gotten from allegedly dating Taylor Swift. So do I care? No, I don't care about celebrity news. But I just think it's a good reminder that uh, our little world of sports doesn't touch people like Taylor Swift. Yeah, I think it was more fun when he was getting shut out by her. Maybe that's just me. Like, yeah. like I had my bracelet. She didn't answer me. Like I found that to be funny. So now I'm like, yeah, I don't know. So where is this going to go? But yeah, it is what it is, I guess. It is what it is, and we've done enough. We've ta- we talked about it for five seconds. That's more than enough. That's uh, more than enough. Let's go to our segment we're going to call DMs, DMs. That's Don oh, Mitchell's that's direct messages. Uh, I don't know where Don's going to go with this, but we thought it would be funny to at least try. Oh, my goodness. So, you know, people always ask me, okay, well, you must, what, what are your DMs look like? And they are... For the most part, I delete a lot of them. And so, Jim, just for you, I've been saving some. Oh, good. Um, you know, some I don't save the ones where I think, like, if I even respond to this person, my life is in danger, I'm going to end up in someone's basement. So, but I will, re- and I will never out anyone's name or any like that. But here is, here is one example of DMs, DMs. All right. If I was a giraffe, I'd slap my neck against hundreds of other giraffes to establish dominance over the herd and make you my giraffe queen. <laughs> okay, that's that's a little funny, it's a little scary, and it's very disturbing. But it's it's exactly what I expected. I have to admit, that's what I thought when I thought about DMs, DMs. I thought that's what we're going to get. And I was not disappointed. And the best part 
is when I did not answer this gentleman. Yes. He did a follow-up. Of course. Why would he not? With a good morning. Like, I'm his best <laughs> buddy. Like, good morning. Like, are, like, are we dating or whatever? So, um, you know, but you're just tempted to. I'm like, no, I, no, I'm not going down that rabbit hole. But th- that's just scratching the surface. So I think as we go further into this podcast, my DMs will, will be highly entertaining for oh you. Oh, my so. God. That's fantastic. That's better than I could have expected. Uh, and I'll just say this. I'll just, let's put it in perspective. You're the Taylor Swift in the relationship. He is the Travis Kelsey. Who knows? I mean, if he has a giraffe, he's got to he's got to be something, right? <laughs> um, well, something, something is the way we'll leave it. Then, is we do not want to Maybe insult he someone. Maybe a giraffe. Maybe. Uh, <laughs> all right. Hey, every time we do the show, we're going to do a segment on women's sports. Sometimes it's yes. going to be long. Sometimes it's going to be the lead. Sometimes it's just going to be what's going on lately. Uh, but we want to talk about women's sports on this network and on this show every week. So we're going to get to that. I do want to let you know. Uh, that we've been sponsored for a long time by Rudy Luther Toyota. So thank you to Rudy Luther Toyota. Yes, thank you, Rudy. Ready for a women-forward car dealership? Rudy Luther Toyota empowers their many women on staff in sales, management, and service. Whether you are looking for a new Toyota or pre-owned vehicle, Rudy Luther Toyota has something for everyone. Every vehicle comes with a Luther Advantage. Ten cents off fuel and car wash discounts at holiday stations, Luther Advantage Warranty, and five-day return policy on pre-owned vehicles. Located just five minutes west of downtown Minneapolis, off 394 and General Mills Boulevard. And they're also hiring. Want to join the team but don't know where to start? Visit RudyLutherToyota.com today. Well, it's part of um, my life to introduce this next gentleman, and, and probably the highlight of my career was meeting you. So Jim Cott is joining us on this podcast. Jim, I always say when I tell people about you that I consider you like my second dad, because when I first started in this business, you were so kind to me and so helpful. And you'd always say that I reminded you of your daughter, Jill. So um, I just, with a huge heart, I just say thank you so much for coming on this podcast and talking some baseball with us. How are you? Doing fine, and I remember those days fondly, Don, and uh, uh, the uh, in the booth with CBS, and uh, yeah, those are, those are great days. Doing fine, living the retired, semi-retired life. I still get back to uh, Minnesota. I think that if the Twins get the division series, I probably will make an appearance there. Dave St. Peter will have something for me to do. Oh well, I'm sure, right? They'll always put you to work. Yeah, you know, once a twin, always a twin, but you still gotta. Go out there and and give the love to the fans. Let me, first of all, let's back up a little bit. Before we get into how we know each other a little bit more, let's talk about the big elephant in the room, Cooperstown Hall of Fame. Jim, I know from everyone watching, they're like, yes, Kitty is in there. Tell us about (laughs) when you got that phone call, you know, that it's just life-changing for you. What was that like? Well, you know, it probably wasn't uh, as anticipated as it was for, say, Big Poppy or some of the other candidates that were pretty much a sure thing. But I had been on the ballot many times. And when I looked at the veterans ballot, and when I looked at the committee, I thought, well, I finally have some players and executives on there uh, and press that actually you know, worth covering me during my career. So I thought I had uh, a good chance, but I, I didn't anticipate 
anything. So when I got the phone call, you know, what the Hall of Fame does is they give you a 30-minute window to be at your phone. And I've, been, I've done that drill before. And if you don't get a phone call, why they don't call with bad news, they just don't call. And so about 15 or 20 minutes of the half hour had gone by, and I thought, well, yeah, I don't think I'm going to get a call. And then the phone pinged, and it was uh, an area 917. Well, Jane Clark, the uh, chairman of the Hall of Fame, is the one that calls. And in Cooperstown, the area code is 607. So I thought, well, I better quick take this call and get off the phone. So when I answered, she said, uh, is this Jim Cott? And I said, yes. And she said, this is Jane Clark from the Hall of Fame. Well, I immediately knew what the call was about. And it was, uh, you know, it was just Margie and I in the room. I was actually watching a little golf to take my mind off it. But, uh, you know, there's a flood of memories that, uh, that go through your mind. But it was, uh, you know, the longer it's gone on, I think the more appreciative I I am of it because I was probably the first pitcher inducted based on, say, longevity, durability. One of the uh, things I realized early on is most of the starting pitchers that are in the Hall of Fame were dominant number one opening day starters, perennial all-stars, and I really didn't fit that profile. Uh, but I was glad that I had a lot of, uh, you know, Fergie Jenkins was a good supporter and and uh, Joe Torrey and, and Ozzy and I had a lot of course with with Bert and some of the Minnesota people there and then uh, John Sherholz was an executive so I had a lot of support from guys who evidently thought enough of my career that I should get in and I'm so glad that Tony uh, went in with me uh, my friend Dick Allen missed by a vote that would have been cool to have him there as well but it's uh it's just uh, I never realized the uh, the magnitude of all of a sudden uh, being recognized as a Hall of Fame baseball player because my record hasn't changed in 40 years. Uh, <laughs> so it's it's been a pretty awesome experience. Oh, you know, I was just, my heart was pounding when you were saying, you know, I'm about 15 minutes in and what you, you must have been feeling at that point, you know, like, did I get duped into waiting once more? I mean, it's just that stress. We've talked to Tony Olivia about it for years, you know, like you, you um, it's, it's almost like you keep chasing that carrot, but after a while you want it to chase you, right? Yeah. I never, I never really was that, uh, you know, I wasn't that upset about it. I kind of years ago, I, I came to the realization that it's going to be the dominant starting pitchers. It's going to be limited to that. I'm hoping that my friend Tommy John, who is not in good health right now, but I'm hoping TJ gets in. And if I'm on the committee, I certainly will support him. He's due up uh, at the end of next year, which would be induction in 2025, because uh, we had always told each other, if you get in and I don't, I'd be disappointed. And if I get in and you don't, you should be, because our careers are so parallel. And there's nobody more famous in, in the baseball world than Tommy John. His game name gets mentioned uh, at least once or twice every day. So I'm hoping that uh, that he he too will get in soon, based on his uh, longevity and durability. Well, I want to tell people just what an amazing human you are. And you know, uh, Jim uh, Suhan and I were just talking about you last weekend, and I was fresh out of college. I think I even did some internships and I, and I was working behind the scenes. I think Sean McDonough was the play-by-play -play guy for the Red Sox at the time and Minnesota would come into town and it was you and Ted Robinson, 
right? And Tim Scanlon was like the assistant producer. And you guys always needed a stage manager or some from Boston to help out. And none of the, the young kids wanted to work with the away teams really at that point. They just wanted to be at the hometown. You know, that's a Boston thing. And I said, sure, I would love it. And uh, that's when we first met. I was just handing you cards to go to break, doing whatever, you know, a stage manager had to do. And then pretty soon, Tim Scanlon had me setting up stuff onto the field. And Jim, I, I've learned so much from you, not only about baseball, but about how to be such a good human. Um, it's just extraordinary because people always think of you guys as these legendary baseball players and you just kind of, you know, just kind of walk in this league of, of your own, so to speak. And I want to tell people that no, you said, hey, I have this gift certificate from this radio station and I'm not going to use it. And you gave it to me. And I remember thinking, oh, my gosh, this can feed me and my roommates for a week. It was at some restaurant <laughs> in Boston. I was like, yeah, thank you so much. And I sent you a thank you card. And pretty soon, whenever the twins came to Boston, they would your your group would request me to be your stage manager. And that's how I got to know you. And so when you got the CBS network job, I remember you said, hey, Donnie, um, a guy from CBS might call you. Um, I put your name into the ring for for uh, a job, but uh, I don't know what that if that means anything. But uh, and next thing you know, I get a phone call from Andy Goldberg of CBS going, "So are you meeting us Saturday?" <laughs> and <laughs> next thing I know, for four years, I'm traveling with the baseball crew for CBS Baseball. It was. You and Dick Stockton the first two years, and then you and Greg Gumbel. And just being around, uh, I, I just, I'm being around people who are at the top of their game, not only in sports, but also in broadcasting. And how kind, I mean, here we are all these years later, where we're still friends. People need to know that the amazing humans that you are and, and how you've opened doors. And then the fact that I'm in Minnesota right now after having that connection to the Minnesota Twins and to you all those years ago, for me, it's kind of come full circle, but I have to pinch myself sometimes. Like, you know, you have to believe in fate in a little bit, don't you think? Yeah, I think, you know, a, a, a broadcast team, I came to find out early on, it, it's like being a part of a baseball team. And I was so fortunate when I started doing college games for ESPN, and we would do double headers in Omaha for the College World Series. And Freddie Gadelli, who is now the top producer director for NBC Sunday Night Football, he's become a rock star. Well, Freddie was producing games in, in the, the second game of the doubleheader, and I'd worked the first game. So he said, why don't you sit in the truck? So I sat in the truck for several games, and I found out what goes on down there. Fans watching at home don't realize how hectic it can be in a truck there with the with the director and the producer and the graphics person and all that. And then, you know, it comes right up to the booth through the talk back. So those of us in the booth are part of the team, too. So I think recognizing that uh, this is a team and uh, we treat everybody like a teammate. Uh, I remember Timmy, you know, Timmy Scanlon first started out as a assistant producer and then CBS called and they were looking for somebody to go uh, help out in the Winter Olympics. I gave him Tim's name and uh, lo and behold, Tim goes on. He's had a great career. He's in uh, representing uh, broadcasters now. But it's all part of being a team, and it's the way that Dick Inberg and Dick Stockton and John Madden and 
and uh, the great Harry Coyle uh, that were behind the scenes, you know, producers that they helped me launch my career. So I think you just uh, you just pay it forward. Well, and I don't think you get enough credit for how good your sock game was back then. Do you still have the best sock game around? No, I, you know, that was my late wife, Mary Ann. She was the one with the uh, with the braces and the socks. And uh, <laughs> yeah, she had me all decked out. So I, I've, uh, I, I went away from the sock game. I just didn't have the energy. No, I couldn't put them together like she could. Ooh, it's a lot of work. Yeah. It's a lot of work. So, Jim, um, let me bring uh, Jim Suhan into this conversation. Jim, being here in Minnesota and and just knowing what Jim Cott did, not only for this organization, but he's done for broadcasting, what has that meant to a lot of the, the native Minnesotans? Because I've seen it from the outside, and now I've seen it from the Minnesota side. And it for me, it just gets richer every time. Well, I, I think Jim is deserving of being in the Hall of Fame based on his uh, pitching and fielding and longevity. Uh, I think it's a really easy call when you consider him as a baseball figure, as a baseball performer, which means ambassador, broadcaster, uh, you know, the kind of person everybody wants to see walk in the ballpark, everybody wants to see walk in the clubhouse. You know, I mean, everybody loves talking to Jim Cott. Everybody loves listening to Jim Cott. And honestly, you know, that's, that's, that's rare. You know, there are a lot of people who can play the game, can't talk it. There are a lot of people who can talk the game, can't play it. To have Jim be able to be a great player who can then bring you into the pitcher's mind, bring you into the dugout, into the clubhouse, help you think the game. I mean, that's what baseball's for. Baseball's for the moments where you think and anticipate about what's coming. And nobody really explained the game uh, the way Jim Cott did. Jim, did it come easy for you to explain the game when you went over to the broadcast side? Well, I, I think the normal, uh, and, and Jim, I appreciate those those comments. Uh, yeah, I think it's normal that you you say, well, you're probably going to have to make some critical statements and players aren't going to like it. So my friend Tim McCarver uh, taught me to be honest and objective. You say something that you think might be a little controversial, be in the clubhouse the next day uh, and be face-to-face with them if they have a, a beef with you. But I, I think the more I got into the game, and it didn't take me long to recognize that, that uh, and it was a great John Madden that I, I picked up a little information from, is that with all the notes, and today, you know, you can talk stats for three hours and never talk about baseball. And uh, mm-hmm. so I learned from those guys to watch the field and talk about what's going on in the field. And I kind of imagined that I was uh, sitting in a box seat with a fan that was there for the first time, a fan that was sort of a lukewarm fan, and then a very avid fan. And if you can give them something every day, every game, that uh, they could pull out of that and say, oh, I didn't know that before. And and that's what was uh, so heartwarming to me when I did Yankee games for so many years, and also Twins games, is when somebody said that, uh, boy, I learned a lot of baseball from you. Well, uh, you know, that, that makes me feel like my job was worthwhile because that's, that's what we're up there, uh, up there really to do, to describe what's going on on the field. And then from our perspective, from all the experience that we have, kind of doing the how and why of uh, why a player is doing that, how he's doing it. And uh, so I think just by starting to watch the game, John Madden said he kept very little notes. Of course, he only did a game a week. And he would do his homework, and he said, if you've done your homework, and you're accurate with this player, like if this is a wide receiver and he takes a tough hit on the sideline and 
And you say, man, he's a tough guy, but his teammates know, well, no, he's really a little soft. He said, you got to, you got to know things like that, you know, to how to, how to accurately describe the guys that are playing the game. And then once the game starts, I remember a CBS producer would say, what are we looking for tonight? Uh, Rick LaCivita. And I said, Rick, I'm looking for the first pitch of the game because in basketball, football, tennis, it goes back and forth, back and forth. In baseball, we don't know where it's going. And we don't know if the starting pitcher is going to be in there for an inning or two innings. So we just watch the game and let it unfold. And it tells a story by itself. And you just kind of take everyone along for the ride, right? Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, it's, it's still, uh, I'm in the East Coast a lot. And I, I still, in fact, I ran into one today that uh, watched all the games when I was doing Yankee games. And, it, you know, it's nice to hear people. Uh, compliment what you did, make you feel like you've you've done your job and, and done a nice service for people. Well, uh, I have to thank you for my face. Years ago, when we were in the old Tiger Stadium, that's going back a ways, and you always brought your glove. And I remember right. saying, why do you have your glove for this game? And you're like, wait till you see where we sit. And um, thank God I was to your right, uh, well, facing the field, sitting to your right, and you, uh, and I'm thankful that you had 16 gold gloves because all I literally saw was a flash of leather and there was a ball in your glove that was coming <laughs> to my face. And I so I, I don't know if I've ever properly thanked you for saving my face or potentially my life because that was so fast. But you were ready for it. You said every time you went there, that's when you brought your glove, right? Well, you know, the great Ernie Harwell kept a net in front of him. I mean, that was such a great place to announce a game, Old Tiger Stadium. That's where my dad took me in 1946 to see my first two games. But I remember Ken Herbeck in the on-deck circle. Herbie used to look up and carry on a conversation with me in the broadcast booth. That's how close we were to the playing field. So, yeah, you, uh, Larry Osterman, who I think did some Twins games at one time as well, uh, he was looking at his scorecard. He got hit right in the chest with a foul ball that came back there. So, yeah, that was a place I enjoyed doing games there, but you did have to be alert for the foul balls. Oh, yeah. Well, I learned my lesson quickly. <laughs> Thankfully for that flash of leather in my face. Jim, let me ask you about this year's Twins. Everybody is, all right, they've clinched. It's nice to see them celebrate. It's not the strongest division um, by far in baseball. But they're looking now, they just have this streak of 18 games losing in the playoffs that's kind of hanging over their head. As a former twin and a guy that analyzes the game, does it hurt you on a personal level to see kind of that hanging over a former team of yours? And what do you think they're made of and how far can they go this year? Well, I think the first part of that is I think the realization is that they were against teams, namely the Yankees, that were at the time far better teams. So it wasn't like they were the favorite getting knocked off all the time. Uh, and, and that is a, a tough streak. It looked like uh, they, they had it one day, took a five-run lead early in the one game against the Yankees, and that didn't hold up. But, yeah, I think this year's team, uh, even though their record is the third best of the division winners, uh, when you start looking at some of the, particularly the starting pitchers, the, the Twins, and I know this is a stat that a lot of old baseball people from my generation think is not really a meaningful stat, and that's the quality start that the great John Lowe, who went into the Hall of Fame this year in the writer's wing, 
He came up with that. Six innings, three earned runs or less. Well, the Twins have more of those than any team in the major leagues. They're, uh, I think they just went over 75 with Joe Ryan's start, 75. But of those quality start games, they've won 50. Well, the 25 they lost, the bullpen's ERA was near eight, and the team was not scoring any runs. Their batting average was under 200. So you combine mm-hmm. those, they, with better production from the bullpen and the offense, they would potentially be a team that won well over 90 games. So I think that's a bright spot to look at if, if they could produce like that in the playoffs. Now, if Houston holds the number six spot, that's going to be, to me, their toughest challenge because they're going to look at Verlander in game one, probably Framber Valdez in game two, both quality starters, but so are Pablo Lopez and Sonny Gray. So I think Rocco's, uh, I think Rocco's challenge is going to be if these guys give them that six innings of effective baseball, now that it's the postseason, will he stretch them another inning or two? That, that to me, is what's been so sad about the way they've dumbed down starting pitching. Mm-hmm. Because I use the Kentucky Derby analogy. If you have a horse that's a potential Kentucky Derby winner, uh, he has to run a mile and a quarter. But if you just run him three-quarters of a mile in training and then all of a sudden comes the Kentucky Derby, he's not going to be able to run that. So the fact that these pitchers have never been trained to go deeper in the game, to pitch out of jams, like the great Warren Spahn told me when I had a pitching lesson from him, he said, now, kid, let me tell you this. When the game's tied in the seventh inning, the game's just starting. you got to pitch Mickey Mantle differently in that fourth at-bat than you did in the first at-bat. So, see, we weren't superhumans to pitch complete games with 300 innings. We were trained to do that and and took our lumps maybe in the minor leagues. And unfortunately, the starters today don't get the opportunity to do that. Now, that'll be interesting for me to see because I think, well, the last game Pablo Lopez went eight innings, struck out 14. They took him out. Twins lost the game. So uh, I, I would like to see Rocco, you know, if the pitchers, starters are doing well, uh, take it an extra inning or so, so you can get to your really high leverage relievers that you feel you're very, uh, they're very dependable. And then I think based on that and the way they're, I know they're missing Correa and, and Royce Lewis right now. Correa hasn't done a lot offensively anyway, but uh, as long as the guys that you don't hear a lot about, like Walner and and Kirilov and uh, Solano, all these guys that are picking up uh, the offense, uh, I think they have a chance to go a long ways. Do you think that that's hurt the game that you don't see these workhorse, you know, pitchers or even guys going the distance? I think it's hurt the appeal of the game. Uh, and the commissioner again, he said, "Well, you know, um, I know he got roasted pretty good at our Hall of Fame dinner two years ago, and and uh, you know, because a lot of the former players they they don't like uh, iPads in the dugout and things like that." And he said, "Most teams." will tell you that the information they get helps them win two or three games. And so I said, well, Rob, think about what you're saying. If everybody has the same information, if it's helping this team win two or three games, the other team is losing those two or three. So, yeah. But the analytics are here to stay. And they have to weigh, find a way to, to blend, to, to use them in the front office for player evaluation, but not on the field. And I think with the starting pitching, with this myth that uh, – they're saving their arm, which they're not, because 
your your ability to go deep in the game is based on your legs. And the more innings that you can pitch and the more you can throw on the sideline to build up your legs, the better chance you have to go deep in the game. So the piecing the game together with three or four pitchers might be effective. But I think the appeal to the fan would be if I picked up the paper and saw where uh, uh, we'll say uh, Pablo Lopez, or let's say Pedro Martinez was pitching against Clayton Kershaw. Well, I want to go to that game because, man, these guys might be battling it out the eighth or ninth inning. That'd be fun to watch. But that doesn't happen anymore because they pitch six or seven great innings and they're out of the game. So it has hurt the appeal of the game from a fan standpoint. I always wanted to ask you this question and because I it's one of these things that people don't the game within the game is who your battery mate is right and and you can have a bad game if the catcher isn't on the isn't in sync with you um so who was your favorite catcher that you played with and had your best games with well it, it varied now when I first came up with the twins Earl Batty was our catcher and Earl was this laid back. I'm sure Jim probably remembers him. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and Earl was this laid back, soft spoken, you know. And he just he made me feel so relaxed. And so he was very important to me those uh, first seven or eight years of the Twins. And then Phil Roof came along, and uh, Phil and I actually it was kind of a funny incident when uh, he blocked the plate on Harmon one day back in the sixties. Play. So being a pitcher and sticking up for my teammates, I had to take a shot at him and I hit him in the ribs. <laughs> and, and, you know, he knew what it was about, but so we were a few years kind of glaring at each other. And then he got traded to our, our club and Bill Rigney put him in the lineup one day. And wow, it was like magic. And Phil and I to this day are close friends, but uh, Phil just had that knack. And the, the way it would go, for example, we'll say Willie Horton is a lethal fastball hitter. He was a great power hitter for the Tigers. But say I've thrown him two or three pitches, and I look and I say, you know what? I think I can get a fastball in there on the inside on Willie right now because of the sequence of pitches I've been using. And I look down at Phil, and there's the fastball sign. So he's thinking the same way I am, and we were successful with it. So that's really what, when you hear pitchers enjoy working with certain catchers. See, a lot of catchers will call what they can't hit. So if it's a tight situation and they can't hit the curveball, well, they're going to call for a curveball. Well, that might not be the pitch that I want to throw. So good catchers, and a lot of them were not great players, good uh, battery mates were guys that could kind of put themselves in the mind of the pitcher, know what your sequence was getting up to that third or fourth at bat, and call pitches accordingly. And, and Phil fit that mode. Earl, in, in my early days, it was it was more, it was just control. I had to learn to throw strikes. So uh, I spoke at Earl's funeral, and uh, his widow had called and said, would you say a few words? I said, be happy to. So I went to, up to Ocala, and, and so I said, I said, you know, Earl prayed for me, and I got real quiet. If I fell behind Earl, uh, Earl would make the sign of the cross and put his glove up and say, here. <laughs> that's, how, that's how simple he kept it. And that was good for me at the time. And Phil was good for me at the time. Oh, well, Jim, I, I seriously, I don't know about you, Jim. I could talk to you, Kitty, all day long, but I appreciate, um, I appreciate your time. And I just, I really adore you. So all these years that I have known you, um, you just keep getting better and better in my book. 
And I hope to see you actually coming up uh, soon here in Minnesota. Hopefully um, we'll, we'll see your smiling face and the fans can give you your due once again. Yeah, I'll look forward to that, Don. It's always good when I walk through Target Field now, there's some of the employees that have been there and they remember our teams of the 60s. And, you know, I don't have anything to do with the baseball ops today. We're, we're kind of outdated. They, uh, they have a new way of looking at things, but it's always good to connect with the with the great fans up there and people like yourself and Jim, uh, you know, from the media that, uh, that I have good relationships with. So I'll hope we do hook up. And I think those three home games in the division series, if the twins are still in it, uh, then uh, I should be back there and maybe we'll get a chance to say hello. Oh, I would love that. Thank you so much. Jim Cott, the man who fittingly now lives forever in Cooperstown. Thanks so much for joining us, Jim. My pleasure.